Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. Um, this is the last chapter of the book of Hebrews, and Lord willing, Pastor John will finish this epistle next week. And as a reminder, the first 10 chapters primarily is about the reality of the gospel of Jesus, and the last three chapters primarily is about the response to the gospel of Jesus. So reality and response, and we land on chapter 13, so we're going to be heavy on application today. So before we read our text, let's pray to God for his blessing. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are the God of love that you would send your only son to this wretched world from his heavenly throne to ransom sinners to himself. And part of the marvel is that he volunteered to be born of Virgin Mary, to put on himself human flesh. And now thousands and thousands of years later, so many people are celebrating that because he is worth celebrating. Father, thank you for something that none of us deserved. In fact, we deserved the opposite. Father, I ask that as we listen to your word, that you may speak to us, every one of us, clearly of your son, and that we may behold him and respond appropriately. Thank you for this good news. I ask that you be with everyone here, including myself, and also for those who are listening on the live stream. May you bless us. May we have the grace and peace we need. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 through 6. I want to remind you that this is the living word of God. Hear now God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I said this before, but our passage today shows the Christian response to the gospel of Jesus. This is the Christian response to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. 
Um, so I want to say something that's kind of personal to me. Um, and maybe you experienced this, um, but Christianity is not abstract, not intangible, impractical, impersonal, merely intellectual, although it does involve intellect. Because these applications and these verses are visible, tangible, real, practical. And this is what the gospel looks like coming out of the Christian. So my prayer is that the gospel in us would bear expression out of us. My prayer is that we would transition from intellectual agreement, from emotional spontaneity to gospel expression, that we would be living expressions of the gospel, that no one can say they can't see Jesus in us. So in our passage today, we're going to see how the gospel affects our public relationships, our personal relationships, and our preeminent relationship with God. And so that's what we're going to look at today. The gospel expression in our public relationships, in our personal relationships, and in our preeminent relationship with God. First, let's look at the gospel and what it looks like in our public relationships. Look at verse 1. It says, Let brotherly love continue. Or the NIV says, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. First, I want you to remember that the author is talking to Jewish Christians sometime around mid-60 AD, the first century. The Jewish Christians lived in a different time than we do. Their association with Christ meant leaving behind their old life, their old way of life, and that's the only life they knew. It meant leaving their identity as solely identified as Jews, but now being identified by Christ. Their association with Christ can possibly divide their closest relationships with other Jewish friends, with families, maybe even significant others. Their association with Christ invites persecution. Some of them were tempted to go back to the old way of life, and some of them were tempted to neglect gathering together. Imagine the suffering and the difficulty in the first century for the Jews to bear the name of Christ. And then the author says, keep loving one another. Continue loving. Don't go back to your old way of life. Don't neglect meeting together. Let brotherly love continue. That's what the gospel looks like. That's what the gospel looks like coming out of Christians despite horrendous circumstances because Jesus is better. Circumstances are not the masters of Christians. Christ is the master of Christians. Circumstances don't dictate what Christians do. Christ dictates what Christians do. And if Christ commands Christians to keep loving one another, then Christians 
We're going to love one another despite all circumstances. Father, we need help for that. So I tell you the same thing that he told them. And I'm going to use the NIV. Keep loving one another. And I'm not saying it's always easy. Sometimes it's very, very difficult. But isn't Christ better than a difficulty? Keep loving one another. I'm not merely, I'm not talking about merely interacting with one another. I'm not talking about intellectually agreeing. I'm not talking about something passive. I'm speaking of something far grander. I'm speaking about being and showing Christ in your, in your public relationships. I'm talking about gospel expression because it's real. This is something I said in the men's prayer meeting, but I'm going to say it here. Actually, I'm going to ask you, and it's a rhetorical question. Don't have to respond out loud. But have any of you wanted to go back to when you were younger to either relive your younger years or to redo your younger years? Have any of you been so frustrated with yourself that you want to give up? And sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes even give up on life. Have any of you asked God why he won't just take your life now so that at least in that way you'll stop sinning so much? Here's the good news. Even though we have frequented hating ourselves and hating others, and we heard this verse, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish but have eternal life. In what manner did God love the world? He gave the most precious prize that he had. How could God love us in this way when he knows us, including our sinfulness, better than us? And we get frustrated with ourselves, but he loves us. It is a love so extravagant that nothing and no one could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. How can we who received and believed this gospel not let it bear expression out of us? And so the application stands. Continue loving one another. How? Well, um, verses 2 and 3 gives us some examples. Here's what the author says. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. I'm going to make a very quick comment because I don't think this is the main point. The angel's unaware. He's essentially saying, don't neglect to show hospitality because some of you, by showing hospitality, have actually shown hospitality to angels. 
The main point is hospitality, but that's pretty amazing. But the two examples of what love looks like are hospitality and sympathy. The Jewish Christians were called to show hospitality to strangers and sympathize with prisoners. But in context, I'm going to explain what strangers and prisoners means. In context, strangers most likely means the other scattered and destitute Christians as well as missionaries. So traveling Christians. People that they're not personally familiar with, but invite them. But, but it can also include unfamiliar people, strangers. In context, prisoners doesn't mean someone who, you know, just committed a crime and got punished. It most likely refers to Christians who are being persecuted and confined for the name of Christ. We're talking about Christian prisoners. And he says, show hospitality to, to strangers and sympathize with prisoners. So what does it cost them to do that at that time? To the Jewish Christians, showing hospitality to strangers could invite reproach and persecution, and sympathizing with imprisoned Christians for the name of Christ can maybe also cause them to be imprisoned as well. That's what it costs them. The gospel expression in public relationship looks like love. It looks like sympathy. It looks like hospitality. It looks like Christ. Hospitality is welcoming the stranger. And sympathy is to suffer with those suffering. So I just want to ask another rhetorical question. What would our public relationships look like if we obeyed these verses? What would it look like to be hospitable to the newcomer or the oldcomer, the outcast, the wretched, the hurting, the shameful, to sympathize with those shamed and persecuted for the name of Jesus? Um, I got this very short illustration from a woman named Tilly, and the title of it was God Saved Me Through Hospitality. I'm going to read a direct quote from her. She said this, A pastor and his wife, friends of my parents, invited me into their home to stay. During the mornings, I met with the pastor and aired my grievances with God and Christianity. The Bible passages and commentary he presented to me were vital to what God did in my heart in those weeks. Here's the part. But just as vital was the evidence that his wife brought to the debate. Her evidence was often wordless. Space made in her afternoon to drink tea with me or to take a walk, clean sheets in a bedroom I shared with one of her daughters, a cultivated calm in a home full of children and teens, a hug given freely with a peg on the cheek. The words were necessary, but the hospitality was what gave the words context and weight. So what would our relationships look like if we obeyed these verses? How do we show hospitality to strangers with COVID? How do we sympathize if we don't know any persecuted Christians? How do we do that if we're introverted? How do we do that if people are difficult? 
How do we do that if we're selectively extroverted? How do we do that if we're busy? And the short answer is we would figure out a way. We show hospitality and sympathy regardless because being hospitable and sympathetic are more than what we do. They are who we are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because that's who Jesus is. It's not something we just do. That's part of our identity. If we obeyed these verses, our public relationships would look more like Jesus. And um, here's a little friendly civil debate. It is very hard sometimes to do those things, but let me just remind you of Jesus. Jesus had every reason in the book to be inhospitable and unsympathetic. He had the most challenging circumstances any person could ever have. He was mocked for his occupation as a carpenter. He was insulted for his heavenly claims. He has been been the victim of attempted murder and he was murdered. He was shamed for loving sinners. He was betrayed by one of his closest friends when things got too real. He was frequently hated. Yet, he, already nailed to a cross and dying, says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even death Death on a cross was no excuse for Jesus to be inhospitable and unsympathetic. He calls and invites every one of us here and and those live streaming, everyone who has ever heard the good news of him to be forgiven of their sins, to be reconciled with God Almighty whom we have offended, and to spend eternity with him in bliss. What does he require of us in order to accept this wonderful and costly invitation? To believe in him. Christians are called to be hospitable to strangers and sympathetic to our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. So the question is, what can you do to be hospitable to strangers and sympathetic to our persecuted brothers and sisters. And I'm looking at some people here, and some of these people here are super experienced. So you can ask them for advice. They run an Airbnb. So. But here are some ways, just some ways you can do it. I'll give you some examples. You can interact over Zoom if you're afraid of COVID. You can study together at a cafe if you're not afraid of COVID. You can share a meal. You can buy a meal. You can Venmo someone to buy a meal or drink some coffee. You can write a simple text message. You can welcome both the old and newcomers. You can write a Christmas card. You can pray for someone at NCA without that person ever knowing that you're praying for him or her. You can accompany the lonely. You can pray for our church members, pastors, missionaries. You can donate to our missionaries. There is someone who needs Jesus' love hospitality, and sympathy, and you are commanded to, quote-unquote, bother them with those things. 
I added the bother. You don't have to bother them, but to do those things. This is what the gospel looks like in our public relationships. What does the gospel look like, the gospel expression in personal relationships? Let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Um, I'm going to, I believe the KJV uh, translation is more precise to the Greek. And let me read that real quick. It says, marriage is honorable in all, and the bed is undefiled. Uh, the Greek word for bed, it does entail marital, marital intercourse, sex. So in other words, marriage and marital intercourse are good things because marriage is honorable and marital intercourse is undefiled. What are the evil things that God will judge? Adultery and sexual immorality. Let me define those terms. Adultery is a married person committing non-marital intercourse. Sexual immorality is any sort of sexuality which does not conform to God's standards. Um, pornography of any kind, infidelity of any kind, homosexuality, rape, molestation, and more. Any sort of sexuality which does not conform to God's standards. And here's the scary part. The promise of God's word is that he will judge the adulterer and the sexually immoral. Marriage, marital intercourse, good things. Adultery, sexual immorality, bad things. Why do people celebrate marriages publicly? And why do people hide when committing adultery or sexual immorality? Because one is full of honor and undefiled while the other is not. It's kind of weird that the author is talking about this in chapter 13. Why is it so important that marriage is honorable? I'm going to explain that. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman or between Christ and the church. Marriage is honorable. Marriage entails covenant. Covenant is honorable or a bond between two people honorable. Why is that so important? There is a tendency in marriage to forget the honorable covenant and to start fighting for consumerism. People become consumers rather than covenanters. The problem with the consumer mentality in marriage is that the relationship becomes as fickle as your feelings are. The consumer is concerned about the individual rather than the marriage. So what are the benefits of covenantal relationship? And if you guys read The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, this is a direct quote. Tim Keller writes, in any relationship, there will be frightening spells in which your feelings of love dry up. And when that happens, you must remember the essence of marriage is that it is a covenant, a commitment, a promise of future love. So what do you do? You do acts of love despite your lack of feeling. You may not feel tender, sympathetic, 
and eager to please, but in your actions, you must be tender, understanding, forgiving, and helpful. And if you do that, as time goes on, you will not only get through the dry spells, but they will become less frequent and deep, and you will become more constant in your feelings. This is what happens if you decide to love. Covenant. Marriage is honorable. For every sinner in this room, which is everybody here and everyone listening, and especially the adulterer and the sexually immoral, especially those two, I want your attention. The word of God says that God will judge you. Therefore, he wants you to repent and believe Jesus. Turn from sin and turn to him. Furthermore, I have good news for you. Jesus is not as fickle as our feelings. He is as unwavering as his covenant is. If you repent and believe in him, the judgment that God promised you has been dealt already to Jesus Christ who acted as your representative. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him you might become the righteousness of God. Christ Jesus endured the judgment of God for you. And then, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Who then is the one who condemns? Your sins have been paid for if you turn to him. So why is the author talking about marriage at this last chapter? He talked about public relationships, now our personal. Why, why marriage? Because the proper response to the gospel and the gospel expression in marriage is one of unity, not disunity. The gospel looks like Christ and the church. The gospel looks like a man and a woman united. So I want to tell you the same thing. Marriage is honorable. After all, Christ is married to the church. Marriage and marital intercourse are good things. Okay, I know I'm talking to married people, so I'm going to talk to single people for a second. Single people, if you want to be married, you have an honorable longing it is a good desire. As long as you're not lusting or coveting. There is nothing wrong with wanting to get married. There is everything wrong with lusting and coveting, but there is nothing wrong with wanting to get married. In fact, you want an honorable thing and you should pursue it in an honorable way. Married people, I'm going to remind you of something you already know, but maybe some of you have forgotten. You have a tremendous honor, and this is the application for you. Do not withhold uniting together, whether physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. You belong together. 
rather unite all the more. Make some time. Be slow to speak, quick to listen. Unite together over a cup of coffee, playing Monopoly, reading the Bible, praying, and especially partaking of the undefiled blessing of marital intercourse. The gospel expression in personal relationships looks like unity and fidelity. It's good. Marriage and marital intercourse are good things. And shame on those who say it's not. They are good things. So that was the gospel expression in personal relationships. Now the last one, the gospel expression in our preeminent relationship with God. Look at verses 5 to 6. The author says, Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? There's a lot here. I'm going to try to be brief. Essentially, the author tells the Jewish Christians to not love money and to not fear man. And interestingly, those two things still dominate a lot of people today. The love of money and the fear of man. So I'm going to show you some ways that you might see this in your life or in the life of others, and you may be familiar with these things, but I'm going to give you a few examples. Here's the love of money. Love of money looks like monetary success over God. Monetary success over people. Prioritizing your children's academic success for their financial stability over God. Students choosing academic success over God, prioritizing work over fellowshipping with the saints for an indefinite period of time, stealing and taking something that's not earned, love of money. Here's what the fear of man could look like. Insecurity, social anxiety, hatefulness, bitterness, anger, unhealthy desire for fame, recognition, affection, approval, maybe even doing unhealthy things for those things. It could look like pretentiousness, being two-faced, three-faced, four-faced, billing faces. That's the love of money and the fear of man. The love of money and the fear of man can dominate you or maybe even harass you. So what is the solution to the problem of the love of money and the fear of man? And what does the gospel look like in this situation? And here's what verses 5 and 6 say. The answer to both is contentment with what God gave, with what God said, and who God is. Contentment with what God gave, what God said, and who God is. What did God give? His provisions. What is God's word? What did he say? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who is God? He is my helper. The way to combat the love of money and the fear of man is contentment. You can say, you can say to yourself, I should stop fearing man. I should stop loving money. That could be good. But the positive way to go about that is contentment. To have a greater love 
for God and a greater fear of God. To be content with what God gave, with what God said, and with who God is. Here's a story I heard on the radio. I hope I say the gist of it accurately. I may butcher it a little bit. This is a story about how a father became a Christian. Um, the father wasn't a Christian, essentially. The daughter was. And sometimes he would feel like his daughter's just preaching to him all the time. Or not all the time, but sometimes. And he may get annoyed or frustrated. Over time, eventually, later, the daughter was hospitalized and she and the father were in the room. The doctor came into the room and delivered the news that she had stage four cancer. Here's the daughter's response. She immediately laughed out loud. I think she was 14. And the father was confused and talked to the daughter. It's like, why are you laughing? The daughter explained, and hear her words. I am in God's hands now. And the father shared how in that moment, it felt like the Holy Spirit was convicting him to believe. The father said he saw his daughter lose everything, confronted by death, and still somehow managed to believe that God was more than enough. And he said he could not help but believe she had something better than everything. And to her, that was God. What does the gospel look like in your preeminent relationship with God? It looks like contentment. What can you do to someone who's content in God. You can take away everything that person has, but God is still better. You can't, you can't hurt him or her. So how can you have contentment? Here are some ways. Rehearse and review what's real. Literally, look around you <laughs> a Christmas tree. Look around you and see what God has given you. Take time to look around you and see what God has given you. Don't look so much at other people and what you don't have. Look at what God has given you. And another one is, that's what God gave. Sometimes when you're upset or discontent, all you gotta do is get out of yourself and just look around at reality. Another one is what God said. Literally rehearse the promise of God even out loud. He will never leave me nor forsake me. I don't feel this way, but he said, he will never leave me nor forsake me. Literally review the past faithfulness of God towards you and remember his continual faithfulness. If discontentment comes from looking and listening so much to money and man, then contentment comes from 
looking and listening all the more to God. And here's a question for you. Do you do that practically? That's how you get contentment. Contentment with what God gave, what God said, and with who God is. And I'm going to tell you one more thing for all those who believe in, in Jesus. Here's what God gave to you. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? What more can we ask of God to give than the best give, gift he has already given? What more can he do? You find contentment in him. So here is a summary of everything that we just read. The gospel is real, tangible, and the gospel expression in our public relationships look like love, hospitality, and sympathy. The gospel in our personal relationships look like unity and fidelity. And the gospel in our preeminent relationship with God looks like contentment. This is the Christian response to the gospel of Jesus. This is the response to who Jesus is and what he has done. There is no way, no way that Christianity is solely abstract, intangible, impractical, impersonal, distant. No way. Not powerful. No way. The application in these verses are visible, tangible, real, practical, powerful. This is what the gospel looks like coming out of Christians, and it looks like Jesus. And that's what we all need more. With that in mind, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this good news that none of us deserve, that no one in the entirety of the history of mankind ever deserved. My prayer is that the gospel in us would bear expression out of us. My prayer is that we would transition from intellectual agreement emotional spontaneity to gospel expression, that we would be living expressions of the gospel, that we would show more of Jesus and be more like Jesus. May we have the grace and peace we need for these things. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.